What's up, everybody? I'm Dr. Peter Bolden. And I'm Dr. Craig Spodek, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. Simply the best podcast in dentistry designed to help you maximize your practice and your life through four pillars of success. Leadership, team culture, marketing, and financial freedom, and everything in between. Now, let's get to it. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Peter Bolden and Monsieur Perrin Depar, because that's a French name, actually, but um, he grew up in South Carolina, so it is actually just Perrin Depar, right? Is that how you say it? <laughs> no, South Perrin Desports. It would just be yeah, Perrin Desports. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, Perrin Desports. That's right. So, so good, good to have you here, Perrin. Um, we cool. have uh, been a longtime fan of Tusk Partners and your podcast, and um, Pete sends me all your podcasts, and I'm just anxious to get to know you better and uh, learn what you guys bring to dentistry. Thanks, Craig and Peter. I appreciate y'all having me on today. Uh, it's a it's a real honor. This ought to be a lot of fun. I'm I'm very uh, I hold your podcast in high admiration too, and the followers that y'all have built. So this ought to be fun. Thank well, you, you know, it it may be a lot higher and a lot more of them by now, Parent. But I've got a I've got a six foot five tag along. He just, he just keeps, he just keeps, he just keeps showing up in the Zoom room every time. Like, oh, another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I actually wasn't invited to this one, but yeah, I just exactly. figured three thirty on a Friday. Maybe I'll just pop into the pop you know in. our Zoom channel and boom, yeah. look at this. We Pete, have one Peter's going. Got nothing going on. He's probably talking mm-hmm. on Zoom anyway. I'll just join yeah. in his sandbox for a little bit, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but might Baron, even crash it, your date night with your wife next week, Pete. Yeah. Just me, you, and her. Just yeah. hang out. Go to go some pizza. In all uh, actuality, I mean, there are a lot of good dental podcasts and there's some that you're kind of like, ah, you know, it's kind of entry level and I don't want to listen to this, but y'all's, I send them to Craig because it's truly like y'all have the chops to be talking about. And we always kind of say this to each other, like, um, and some, just some good takeaways. And just when you think you've got something figured out, you hear someone like, like you and Kevin Cumbus, I guess, or, or co-founders of, of Tusk, you hear you guys discuss things and you're like, wow, I never thought of x y and z so it's just really uh i was really glad to see that you guys launched a podcast because number one you're adding so much value to a space that is as craig and i are leading leading people and kind of having uh you know either masterminds or summits you know it's just it's the wild wild west for a lot of us like we don't know because we haven't been there before and so having you guys kind of talk about it is uh and and being an advocate on our side is really is really cool so big fan Thanks for saying that. I, I, I really appreciate it. You know, the podcast for, for us was um, uh, one of our, our initiatives for 2020. Little did you think it was going to be as much work as it was, Perrin? Um, so, yeah, you know, I, we knew it was going to be uh, a heavy lift. Um, uh-huh. I, I host most of them, um, you know, and the recordings are usually pretty fun. Uh, mm-hmm. And thankfully, I've got a digital marketing coordinator that that polishes them up and distributes them and everything like that. And, nice. and that's a, a huge, um, I think, benefit to us, uh, because I can just focus on the content. And I think yeah. if you know your audience well enough, and you know who you're shooting uh, uh, to be in your audience, um, crafting the content that is bite-sized chunks and deliverables uh, that they can you know, digest at least and kind of conceptualize 
is really key without adding a lot of fluff to it. So it's, uh, it, it's, it has been a heavy lift, but it's also been a little bit of fun. It's fun. No, for sure. It's just like, I kind of started it, you know, even before the days of, you know, Craig joined it later and then I said, I'm going to start a podcast. And I was like, Oh my God, all these steps. And it's, you know, and so it's a, it's a daunting thing, but you're right. It, it's everything, you know, worth anything takes hard work. And so it has been, it has been fun. And and honestly, my, my relationship with Craig is, you know, as a friendship has kind of blossomed. So there you go, Craig, there's my warm fuzzy for the day. That's the only one we're going to get. Yeah. I mean, I remember like being flown around to different places to lecture. Like I remember lecturing in verse sales, Ohio, like hopping on two different planes and driving an hour, like for a one hour lecture. And I'm like, there's gotta be a better way to, to help the profession and to spread this without, you know, being physically there. And I just want, I just want to improve the profession in any fashion that I could. So if we have this venue, why not? I mean, people are using this as net time. They're driving to work, they're listening and we can help people. And Peter and I have skinned our knees and fell down so many times. It's just, it kills me that this would, this information would die on the vine. So I want to get it out. And I'm sure that's your, your mission as well. If you don't mind, just for the listeners um, that don't know, how is Tusk uh, partners found and who are the people and, and also why Tusk? I see the big elephant behind your head. I'm just curious about that as well. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the quick background on it. So I'm one of three co-founders of the business. Uh, my two uh, co-founding partners are Kevin Cumbus, who you mentioned before, and Kevin handles a lot of our uh, sell side advisory M&A side of the business. And then DeWalker Sinha is our third co-founding partner. And DeWalker and I work predominantly in our uh, consulting side of our business. And, you know, my background specifically real briefly is that I spent 15 years running three different businesses for Patterson uh, and saw a lot of uh, the, the customers, the clients we worked with. There were entrepreneurs who happened to be dentists starting to, to grow a group practice. Most of them, um, you know, were, were not um, satisfied, I guess, with just owning one practice. They wanted to own more than one. And when you see enough of them do it and they all stub their toe doing the same thing, making the same mistakes, running into the same challenges and everything, you know, you start to see a little bit of an opportunity there. And DeWalker um, is a career healthcare banker, was most recently VP of sales for a bank out of Pasadena called East West Bank. And East West was the arguably preeminent lender in the group practice space. And and that's a different context from a lending standpoint um, than your traditional, what you might call rate and term lender that's going to loan money to the, the first dentist to start his or her practice or to buy his or her first practice. So growth capital and just, you know, starting your, your or acquiring your first practice are different. And DeWalker saw the same thing that I saw from a banking lens. He and I had gotten to know one another when we both lived in the New York, New Jersey market. Both ended up moving to Charlotte about the same time. And Kevin Cumbus, our third um, uh, co-founding partner, uh, is, a, is a recovering investment banker off of Wall Street. So has investment banking and valuation background, worked for a company called the McGill Hill Group here, here in Charlotte that does a lot of white glove service for dentists, um, one of which is, is practice valuations. And when a company called Heartland Dental started buying up a lot of practices they had listed for sale, Kevin saw the light bulb, you know, all of a sudden go off in his head that was, oh, the enterprise level DSOs look at valuation like investment banking that meets with some of my background. So Kevin DeWalker and I all lived in Charlotte, all live in Charlotte and we're all, you know, sitting around the campfire multiple times together saying, you know, somebody really ought to start a business that would help entrepreneurial dentists grow and sell their group practice. Why isn't anybody doing that? And Mm -hmm. if you repeat that refrain to yourself often enough, you're like, well, 
why don't we do that? You know, we've got the background, we've got the experience to do it. We all understand growth strategy for business. None of us are clinical dentists, obviously, but that's, that's not what group practice is necessarily about from a leadership context. It is the business uh, that is dentistry, but the reasons that group practices fail is not because they have a bunch of bad dentists doing bad clinical work. It's usually because they're overburdened with debt. They can't hire and fire appropriately. They can't attract associates. They can't grow the business and they have irrational expectations upon exit. So we decided to start a business that would help entrepreneurial dentists start, grow, and ultimately sell their group practice or DSO. And that business has, has become Tusk. And the, the, the brand, if you will, uh, I'll just conclude the thought on this. We, when we were putting the business together, we wanted it to be, uh, we wanted it to be a brand. We w- didn't want it to be Desport Sinha Cumbus LLC. You know, as Kevin likes to say, the the URL was available, but you know that wasn't that wasn't what we were going to call our business. We really wanted it to be a one syllable word, and we really wanted to repurpose the URL and. So we, we brainstormed everything and nothing stuck or everything was always taken. And so Kevin's on spring break with his wife and young kids going up to New York. And the first place they go is the, the Natural History Museum on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And as soon as you walk in, if you've ever the been in Mammoth, yeah. Yeah, walk through the front doors and the first thing you see is that huge mastodon with the two tusks coming out and literally you walk right into it. And Kevin was like, oh, bleep, tusk. It's a tooth. The elephant's the wisest beast in the field and it, it lives forever and it can stomp the hell out of anything smaller than it. It's perfect. Mm. So that's we were awesome. like, that's the, that's the brand for the business. And then we found that Tusk.com is actually a women's leather clothing store up in New York and they weren't willing to part ways with the URL. So we use Tusk, but we got Tusk-Partners.com as the, uh, as the website. So that's very cool. Hey, what year was DeWalker join? What, what year was this and what year did DeWalker join you? Because I remember hearing him speak, God, a long time ago, like some like, like almost like a venture capital type su- seminar. I can't remember what it was. It was, it was six years ago. Yeah. So we, uh, we started formulating the idea for the business in about 2016, decided, um, you know, really put pen to paper, figure out how we're going to launch it and what we're going to do in late 16. And then I left Patterson in January of 17. I think DeWalker left um, uh, East West in probably about November of 16. So call it late 16, early 17 is when the business kind of came out of the ground, I guess. Mr. Walker was actually lecturing prior to Tusk, correct? He was getting up on stage and stuff like that, or was that post-Tusk uh, that I saw? Uh, we, um, I think he did do a, a number of presentations for a lot of the, the different conferences um, uh, around. I mean, he, he had a pretty prominent role with East-West, and as, as the group practice movement was kind of getting, you know, uh, getting, getting going, um, a lot of people were running into those challenges around, you know, securing committed debt funds for growth without a fragmented capital structure. And, and that was something and can you just that say he, what that is in English real quick, just so the, the dentist <laughs> that just heard that because that, that was not English. Okay, so I have the blessing and the curse of working with a couple of recovering healthcare bankers. And sometimes I go into banking ease. Um, but so what happens is, you know, if you're going to build a a 10 location group or something like that. And you've got, 
two or three uh, locations that you, you presently own. Um, you know, a, a typical entrepreneur will say, well, I'm going to borrow, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to buy my first couple and I'll use a, a committed lender like a Bank of America or something like that, you know, Wells Fargo or any of those that, that are great at low cost of funds. But they all have a, a ceiling because, um, or a cap on what they're going to lend because they're lending money to dentists thinking that they are, that dentist is going to be working in that business three to four to five days a week. It's, it's a really um, low credit risk. So, you know, once a dentist moves from being a practicing dentist to being more of an entrepreneur and a CEO, and they're, they're still personally guaranteeing the loans, but they're not working in those businesses full time, then that's a little bit of a different underwriting criteria and it's a different risk profile from a lender. So what happens is the initial bank may limit the funds they can borrow up to a certain amount, like say $2 million of loan exposure, but that's not going to get the the founder to 10 locations, right? So they go to bank number two and say, Hey, will you loan me money to, to buy this location? I've got my eye on. And the bank says, the second bank says, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll collateralize that uh, location. We'll loan you money to buy that one or maybe one more. And that's subordinated debt, which means it carries a higher interest rate. It usually carries mm. more confiscatory prepayment penalties. Um, confiscatory, write that one down, Pete. I'm yeah, using that so, one. Yeah, that's going to be my new word. Yeah, so yeah. what you, in, you end up with... You be able with, to pronounce it first. What you end up with is a, a six-location group funded by three different lenders. All subordinated. All at different rates and different uh, prepayment structures. And ultimately, it's, it's like you, you run out of rope. You know, and, and that happens to everybody a lot. We call that hitting the debt funding wall. Um, and, and it's not to point a bad finger at banks. You know, we, banks are great. They love lending money to dentists. And if you communicate with them up front and you get with the right lender and the right structure, then it can be a wonderful relationship. But when you don't communicate what your intentions are and the bank has to react to that, then it doesn't really work out too well in the long mm. run. So yeah, prepayment penalties to get all the subordinated debt and you have to unwind it and you get shafted. Well, so what happens is, you know, you ultimately end up running out of rope and you come to a group like us or, or maybe some others to say, look, can you find me um, a lender that will help me realize my vision? I need an additional two to $3 million to execute my growth strategy. Here's my business plan. This is what I want to do. And, and you're usually looking at either a lower middle market lending group that's not your what you might call a retail banker. It's still traditional senior debt. It's not mezzanine capital or, or anything like that. Um, but it's a, it's a lender that says, we're going we're gonna to recap your business and the $2 million in total debt that you have. We're going to take out all those other banks and we're going to commit to you an additional $2 million of capital to execute your growth strategy, as long as you continue to operate the business within the following leverage and liquidity ratios. So if you know how the game is played and what the bank is expecting of you, then execute using their money to execute your growth strategy is a wonderful thing because it's like having conditional pre-approval. You can, you know, in that structure that I just named, you can acquire practices every bit as quickly as a private equity group could, which is to say, you know, close within 30 days if you want. Let's, so, um, parent, no, no, wait, no hold bank. on, Craig. Yeah, well, let's, let's get into the structure for a second. 
All right, all right. We hope everyone is getting massive value from listening to this podcast. If you are, we're going to ask a couple things in return. First, review us on iTunes. If you don't know how to do that, the easiest way is to pick up your phone, open the podcast app, click on the album art, and then scroll all the way through the episodes and you'll see review at the bottom. Go ahead and bang out the stars that we deserve. Second thing, if you haven't signed up for our text uh, list to get notified of special offers or the next summit or whatever it may be, uh, make sure to text the words bulletproof to 33777. That's 33777 and the word is bulletproof. Third thing is we've got the book, as most of you all know, but we've also got the audible version that Dr. Spodak spent three days in studio and it was an arduous task and he crushed it. He really should be an, an audible book reader. And then last, if you haven't heard, uh, we've got an amazing deal with Merchant Cost Consulting, and it's for processing, and it's a uh, check out that episode. But if you want to get hooked up with that deal, make sure to uh, go to the landing page, bulletproofdiscounts.com. That's it, everyone. Hope you're having a great day, and we'll see you soon. So, Perrin, before we hit record, you you had a you had a great idea, and uh, and I am one of structure as as uh, probably to a fault, and, and I think the great you, you talked about the three biggest kind of problems that are facing the industry from who you kind of advise, and they were attracting and retaining top talent, whether that's team or associate dentist. The second was the debt funding wall, I believe you called it. Yep. And, and the third one would be the founder's dilemma. And I think, I think that's a great kind of podcast thing. And I'd like to go through and unpack those in that order because they're pretty diverse in, in their, in their topic. And uh, so can we kind of, I know you just talked about some of the debt, which I was getting, I was sitting here with kind of anxiety. I was breaking out into hives because I wanted to rewind back to the structure where we originally kind of talked about. So let's go back to, let's go back. If we can, let's go back in that order because I think Craig, Actually, Craig, I think you said maybe even even change the order we go in. Maybe the the debt founder, the, the founder's dilemma being kind of the second thing because it flows into the debt. The debt, we the debt doing, running out of got hot and heavy there for a second to turn the debt, but I want so I want to kind of keep it um, keep it where everyone kind of can follow the we can I, I can follow the bouncing ball. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you want to take founder's dilemma first, usually? No, no let's, let's do retaining top talent. Yeah, let's talk that, about that. that okay. was great. We get that a lot, especially in, you know, that's, that's a question we get with our, a lot in the summits. And we get that question a lot in, in even coaching and masterminding is like, you know, how do you find, like, what's the best way to get an associate? Whether, you know, and so, so I want you to kind of, you know, unpack what you've discovered as, as, the, as the, the answer, so to speak. Yeah. So, um, associate turnover is the number one problem in all group practices. And it doesn't matter if you're two locations or you're a thousand and two, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's all, it's, it's rampant everywhere. So it's not unique to any one set or, or one type of business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about this um, from a couple of different contexts. Um, one, um, when, when, when we're talking about associates, I think about it holistically from a recruiting, onboarding, and development standpoint, okay? And, and I'll, I'll unpack all of that, and then I'll tell you what we think some of the keys are to it. So first things first, um, you know, recruiting, what makes you different than any other group practice I'm interviewing with? All right. What's your why? What's your secret sauce? What's different about you? And don't tell me about clinical compensation rate. 
because clinical comp I mean, compensation is a function of rate and number of patients in the chair. So you can pay me 50% of collections. And if you're, if you can't generate, but three or four patients for me to work on each day, here's the news flash. I'm not going to make any money. All right. Yeah, hallelujah. So hallelujah. I say yeah, that all the time. That. Hallelujah. So, for saying it's so, so compensation. You'll get in a bidding war, by the way, with a couple points and the yeah. practice doesn't generate any money. So yeah, to your point, it's not an apples to apples comparison. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Point, you have 80% of your collections, which you have three yeah. patients a week. Yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. So, you know, compensation rate ain't it. So it's, uh, you know, you want to create um, it's the whole Simon Sinek thing, people who believe what you believe, you know, you want to find somebody that wants to be part of what you're building. And that's what you want to communicate from a recruiting standpoint. But I'll tell you the second thing about recruiting. Um, well, th there are two things that I think are, are key in recruiting. One um, is usually a pathway to equity. All right. So equity and ownership um, have a tremendous amount of benefits from an employee engagement standpoint, from a commitment standpoint, and from a longevity standpoint. And, and I'll, I'll go through all that in just a second. The second piece about recruiting, though, is that human beings don't react well to uncertainty. All right? If, especially if you think about going through dental school, it was compartmentalized, everything was framed in, there's, there's a, a curriculum and a pathway and you're developing a skill set and it's all laid out in front of you and people know when, you know, final exams are and practicals and all that kind of stuff. So they're used to seeing some semblance of a finish line. So you recruit me as, I'm, as an associate and I agree to come work for you. And then you give me a treatment room and a and a lab coat and a, you know, some PPE and stuff and say, all right, Perrin, have at it. I'm like, wait, what? You know, I just got dropped in where? What's going on here? I want to know if I'm an associate, I want to know what it's going to be like. I want to know what my first month, two months, three months is going to be like. Mm -hmm. So when you lay out an onboarding process for me, I get to, to drink the company Kool-Aid, okay? I get to understand your culture. I get to understand fit. I get to understand what we're doing and what my role in it is. Your point of, of um, starting the employee engagement process is on day one. And, and that really needs to be laid out to people so that they can understand what's gonna be expected of them in the first period of time, whatever that is, 30 days, 90 days, or some, some period in between. And then beyond that, especially if I'm a, a young dentist coming out of residency and, you know, haven't had a clinical mentor, I, I, I've got the skill set that I got coming out of dental school pretty much, but what are you going to do to make me a better dentist? You know, how am I going to get better under your leadership? I mean, the, the thing that I used to, to share with people going back to the corporate America days you know, with Patterson is that, you know, don't take your first job based on the money. Take mm. your first job based on who your mentor is going to be and what you can learn from that person. You got 30 or 40 years to make a truckload of cash. If you're good at what you do, you're going to make a lot of money. But what you want to learn quickly and early on is the mistakes that you, you can minimize or, or, or not make that everybody else is. And that's usually from a mentorship and a development standpoint. So if you're talking about recruiting, solve for the onboarding and development piece and lay it out so that somebody can see it in front of them when they're looking at joining your team. 
So like a framework, like here's how we do it. Right. And it's this steps and yeah. So I'm, did you say that you recommend in that kind of, I heard you say 60 or 90 days, we have a kind of a, and I call it a probationary period, but that's not really the it, but you know, it's a trial thing. We want to let, let's kind of date before we, you know, you sign up. Do you recommend those in practices or not? Or do you just say, all right, sign up. Yeah. So um, I agree with you philosophically. I don't know that I would promote it as a probation. <laughs> no, you, that was the wrong term. I, I can't remember. Trial exactly hire. We, we call it a trial hire. Trial yeah, so, hire. Thank you, Greg. So so that's from, what we call it in my office. Yeah. But, but you're evaluating that person for the, for the same reasons. Are they going to be a good fit culturally? Can they do the dentistry you're going to ask of them? Or are they, you know, a gunslinger or something, you know, just, are they going to be a, a, a bad apple in the bunch at the right. end of the day. You want a period of time where you can evaluate them. But for for them, you know, it it might vary by business. Um, but, you know, somewhere between 30 and 90 days of, of having um, laid out in front of them what their first couple of weeks are going to look like, right. how they're interfacing with all the different people in the organization. What are, if you want to put milestones down for them, you know, th- there's that thing about, if you create a clear pathway or to use your, your word, Peter, a framework, I can see myself in that. I also mm-hmm. develop a degree of confidence about the business that you have and that it's going to make me a better dentist than what I could do on my own or if I went somewhere else. And solving for that piece of certainty goes a long way of creating confidence in, in a, somebody who's evaluating you versus another business. And it's a point of differentiation because I'm here to tell you most pra- most group practices don't have that laid out very clearly. That's really smart too. Cause I'm thinking about what you said originally about like, you know, we have the warm confines of dental school and uh, some, some have more fuzzier ideas about uh it wasn't a warm, fuzzy experience for me, but Craig, you speak pretty highly about your dental experience. But regardless, we had the guardrails. We knew the structure. We knew that we knew what was a success and a failure. We knew that you know where the touchdown was, so to speak, right? You know, you had these benchmark, requirements. The benchmarks you know, you, are so key. The benchmarks, right? And so I love how you kind of that's a good idea, Perrin, because I think it I think it resonates with dentists, right? Because we get we get indoctrinated into this, like, okay, I need a path, I need a checklist, I need to I need to do X number of root canals, I need to do X number of crowns before I'm proficient. Maybe that should be extrapolated into into the practices, right? Uh, and I don't think it's a jump through these hoops kind of thing as much as it, hey, this is this is what I would consider a win. You know, the founding doctor would say yeah. this is what I would consider a great win for for the first six months you're here. If you know, if you're if you're doing thirty, you know, indirect restorations a month or whatever it is. Right. But at least outlaying, as opposed to, like you said, here's your lab coat, here's your, you know, here's your room, whatever, go to work. Just do good. Just do good. You know, one of the most powerful things that I ever realized to do and Pete, you're really, you're really fortunate in that Pete's got this pipeline because um, he, some of his uh, partner doctors are directors for a local residency that just turns out powerhouses. So they have this pipeline of like, oh my God, you see Dr. So-and-so, that junior doctor in two years, he's going to be a rock star. So they kind of can groom these people, which is really cool because most people don't have that. We're just really going on blind dates all the time. So one thing that's really powerful is we tend to think people know what we expect of them. And we tend to believe that all dentists treat people the same exact way. And that's a source of big frustration. So one of the things I learned early on in my career 
and I employed, and it's really worked out great, is you sit a dentist down who's going to be an associate and pull up a random set of x-rays and say, what are you going to do on this patient? What would you do? There's no wrong or right answer. But if a patient goes to 10 different dentists, they're going to 10 different answers. And the guy that's going to recommend a full mouth recon for like one millimeter of wear may rattle the crap out of the, guy, the senior doctor. So just see what they see. And it's amazing what they see and what they say. That's and great. instantly, you know, oh shit, we've got a values and philosophical problem here. Because yep. when you look at a, a successful associateship, three benchmarks, be good, do good dentistry and be productive, do value, do, have the same dental barometer for what should be treated and not should be treated. So you share the same values as number one. Make sure the team, the people like you. And one of the metrics is like, make sure that Google's talking about you. People are writing reviews about you. So if they mention Dr. Associate in reviews, that's a good benchmark that people are responding well to you. And third, make sure you're not, you know, that you're a good leader and the team resonates with you. If you have those three factors alone, you're miles ahead. And it's very clear for an associate that you want to be productive. You want to do the dentistry that I agree with, that we we're on the same page. So do this clinical, see these three patients and see what you tell me what you see and what you'd recommend and how you talk to the patient. And you'll, you'll, it'll be a real eye, eye opener for you. You'll save a lot of heartache. Second, you know, make sure patients are liking you and you Google reviews. And the third is uh, team, team responding to you. Cause you could have two of those and just be a total douchebag to your team. Mm-hmm. And the hygienist is going to be calling to founder doc, be like, Oh my God, doctor, new guy just told me, you know, to shut up. And like, you have a, you have a mess on your hands. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Com- completely agree. It's uh, people skills and, and uh, count for a ton and, and this type of a healthcare environment, especially, you know, the, the other thing um, I mentioned early on in, in the associate piece is equity. And, and I'll go ahead and just say that, you know, we, um, we are big fans of, of equity uh, and a pathway to equity um, with a great degree of definition and clarity, not just, hey, you know, you come work for me for five years and, and we'll take a look we'll at that see. point. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I hate yeah, that. yeah. I'm, I'm guilty of that, by the way, just because I don't have the framework built. I am. Well, not. so, I mean, there are a bunch well, of different- once you do it once, it's easier for the next time. The hard the first step's the hard one. Yeah. So. You know, if you want to have equity, I mean, there, I mean, if you want to have others having equity in the business, but I mean, I think, you know, we, uh, there, there are a, a bunch of different ways to solve for, for that um, uh, conundrum when it comes to, to equity. And when you start talking about groups, then you also start talking about equity at a practice level versus equity at a, a DSO or a corporate level. And what's the difference and how does valuation, I mean, I, I won't go into that unless y'all want to at some point. Parent, isn't it funny how so many times you see, like when people talk about equity, it's always a, all right, well, I have a hundred percent and I guess I'll go to 50. And Craig and I are kind of in, in discussions, our mastermind about like, it doesn't have to be a 50% block. It yeah, can be P- Peter 10, and I own Amazon 50. stock. You know what percentage of Amazon we own? Right. And, but that's like the, that's zero, been, zero, zero, one. So it's a tip on been, the table. If you're going to work as an associate and work your tail off, why, and you, why not have a chip on the table? Does that mean a hundred grand or a million or whatever? It's something. If I know I'm committed to this practice, I would like to have an equity piece, whatever I'm comfortable with. And you yeah. know what? You could always buy more over time, but the idea that people will tend, I, I'm a big believer. I'm hundred percent under my practice, but I would love nothing more than to have equity partners. And that's something I, I, I just would love to execute, but the, the devil's in the details and it's always typical. It's tough to get through that. Well, so, I mean, let's, let's go back to the people we're recruiting and, and you mentioned, you know, Pete's got a pipeline and, and can attract a higher level of candidate and all that. And I mean, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but if we're, if we're all interested in, in building uh, successful growing group practices, especially, are, are, we, are we just looking for the bottom of the barrel? I mean, aren't, aren't we looking for a cut above? And, and usually those that are a cut above have aspirations to be an owner. They have yeah. an aspiration to, be, uh, to have a seat at the table. And for lack of a better term, they have aspirations over some level of control. Now, voting control is a completely different context of the conversation. But to your point, Craig, if, if, I, if I own 5% of your business, I'm a partner. You know, I'm, I, that's on my business card. I feel like I have some uh, influence in the overall direction of the business, even if I can't outvote you. But it, it's something to be said that we're building this together. together and right. that type of a mindset gets me to take better care of patients, hopefully, like you mentioned before, gets me to take better care of the staff, be a better teammate and a leader in the business, gets me to mind the top line and the bottom line and not waste supplies and and, and do shoddy work. So, you know, when you, when you talk about associates and, and again, you know, we, we talk about uh, attracting and retaining associates because we want to, we want to minimize or limit turnover. You know, the middle piece that I didn't name is, is attracting, uh, motivating and retaining and having an equity mm. stake in a business is motivational beyond shadow of a doubt. So, there are ways to get a, to get to that, and I think the traditional model you mentioned fifty percent that 's the the solo doctor in a solo location that hires his or her first associate and they right. want that person to buy them out over time so they the sell prob- the out. problem is though parent that 's like eighty historically that 's like ninety five percent of the ownership dialogue so well, we 're fighting against the current of well how can I afford you you 're an eight million dollar practice well yeah well you can have it you can have a $400,000 investment or a $2 million investment. Right. The, 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 the typical dialogue in partnerships has been senior doctor, not wanting to invest, wanting too much money. And it's almost well, like. Well, here's, here's the other rub to it. Here's, here's another dirty little secret. So if you want to sell a, a significant stake, what, whatever significant means, um, and the associate in question has to go to the bank to borrow the funds. They're going to personally guarantee the loan, but your business is the backstop behind that. So again, let's go back to building a group for a second. And we're in growth mode and we're trying to get from five to 10 locations or more. And we're still using bank funds to do it. A committed source of bank funds, like I mentioned before, is critically important. But when a bank looks to make a loan to you, they look at what you're ultimately responsible for and that associate's loan to buy into $500,000 worth of equity in location number two or something like that is going to appear when they pull your credit. And so if you're wanting to grow the business and you're using bank funds- So it's to- on your balance sheet. It's on the company balance sheet, yeah, right? You got, you got yeah. to be mindful of But also of he's that. securitizing the debt as well now he's going to be subordinate to the, I mean, there's that other dirty secret as well. He could wind up being, if he wants to buy a significant portion or he or she does, you, they could be, um, have their butt on the line for the debt. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, it's not, it's not a hard no, but it, it is something to be mindful of again, depending on what type of business you're trying to build. I, we, you know, we are big fans and I'm just going to, 
I guess, be shamelessly promotional or something like that. But you, Kevin DeWalker and I, having worked for corporate America in our past, all were, I guess, beneficiaries of something called restricted stock units or RSUs. And I'm not going to go waist deep into that, but RSUs are an earned equity model that corporate America uses to um, motivate and retain their top performing salespeople, managers, leaders, et cetera. It's not a stock option, but it's an earned equity piece. And it has a vesting schedule, which is the golden handcuffs is what y'all would probably recognize. And the nice thing about it is, or the theory behind it is that we're, we're all, um, uh, we all have equity in the same company. We're all stewards of the company. We all mine the bottom line and we're all interested in growing the value of our shares. And you can build the same model. We've done it for group practices where a founder may own hundred percent of the business. And, and the question for the founder is, is a simple one which is, would you rather be a 100% owner of a business valued at $2 million, or would you rather be an 80% owner of a business valued at $10 million? And then you understand that it's not the percentage ownership necessarily, it's the value of the shares that you hold. And if those associates, again, recruiting associates now, if you can make a pitch to them to say, look, you can come join our group. Um, you'll be on a pathway to partnership on day one. You will have the opportunity to earn equity through superior performance. Oh, by the way, you won't have to buy a dime's worth of it or take on any more debt to do it. You'll earn it through superior performance and, and above average uh, collections in the business. That's pretty compelling to them. Mm -hmm. you know, on a 10 year projection, if they can end up to the same finish line as what they would otherwise have by buying their own business, it's a great outcome with less risk on their behalf. By the way, I'm just going to spitball out something here. Just as a concept while you're talking, I thought of something. Imagine if you would, because a dentist hearing that will say like, well, why am I doing that? I'm just giving away a piece of the pie. And you have to tell the owner dentist, the founder dentist, well, no, because listen, having partners will work harder. And even though you're going to get, you're going to get the 80% of the $10 million business versus 100% of the $2 million. But what if there was a congruent um, system where each year you vest and you get a percentage of the bottom line but you also agree to make, because the owner's dilemma is you want to make long-term profit. And the associate's like, what am I going to get paid this week? What's my percentage? So imagine if you threw in something that's, con that's, con that's consistent, or I'm sorry, collaterally decreasing the associate salary as the percentage of profit of the business goes up. So in other words, like year one, you get, you know, 5% or whatever, you get 5% of the net profit of the business, but you agree to make 3% less on your associate salary. So you're increasing the profitability of the practice and getting a share of that. So it actually worked out to the benefit of the associate and the benefit of the organization, making it more valuable. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd, I'd have to work through the math on that to make sure. I, that I just was... like the theory. Pete, what do you think of that? You think it's, I'm going off on a, a crazy... Yeah. I think that's a little clunky. But you know what I'm saying? Like Pete, Pete and I, have, like as an owner dentist, you, people typically will make less than an associate, but you, as a percentage of your In the short term. But you get an ownership piece of the bottom line. So, you know, it's like the CEO coming on board with a smaller salary, but a greater percentage of equity. Just, just thinking out loud. Yeah, so, I, I mean, a couple of things, just not to get excessively technical, but you mentioned giving away equity. And, and let, me be, let me be really clear for all of your audience, okay? Uh, equity is never given away. It is either bought or it's earned, okay? And that's a critical point because- Good, good distinction. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it, don't anybody in the audience, all the millions of followers you guys have, um, don't anybody ever think about giving away equity. When I say an earned equity model, this is not socialism. It's not share and share alike. This is saying that if you achieve above some threshold of performance, the incremental dollars you get in an equity stake in the business. So that, that in, if I'm the founder of it, that increases the value of my shares at a faster rate than the dilution impacts me on a percentage basis. So I think that's, that's critical to keep in mind because you know, we're, not, we're not talking about diluting people aggressively that, that took the risk to found the business that personally guaranteed the loans that had the sleepless nights that got paid last mm -hmm. to do that. That is absolutely not what you want. What you want is a committed group of associates who achieve above average performance and those that achieve below average performance, they don't earn in, you know, but the ones that do are the ones you want to retain for the long haul. That's really important, that distinction. I'm really happy you went backwards and cleaned that up because it's really important that people understand the concept. And thank you for saying that it's true. Yep. It's, it's earned equity for above average performance because if it's given also, if the language is given, the guy doesn't feel important. Who cares? Oh, yeah, I, got, I, stay, I sat in the same seat treating patients for three years. I got 5%. Bullshit. No, you, you were above and beyond and you earned it. You set out and you hit the metrics. It's true. Completely you actually agree. robbed the person getting it as well when you, when you treat it that way. Completely agree. So I think in summation, well, so it's, it's obviously, you know, like you're saying, Perrin, one of the hacks to, is to retaining and attracting top talent is creating a culture and a framework that, that, that attracts a talent, right? Like, and, and think about like, like you said, the, the cream is rising to the, if the cream rises to the top, you have to have a, you have to have a pathway to keep those thoroughbreds and, you know, attracted to your rowing the boat with you kind of thing. So um, that's great. That's great. 